You're listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. The majority of children born since the year 2000 in Australia will live to celebrate their 100th birthday. And over the past century, we've added about 30 extra years to the average life expectancy. A longer life is something that we can all be grateful for, but alongside a reduction in childbirths, it means that we have an increasingly elderly population. What can we do to live well in our older years? And how can society better tap the social resource that older people represent? Nancy Pahana has been thinking about these issues. She's a professor of geropsychology at the University of Queensland and the author of Aging, a very short introduction. I started off by asking her to explain just how much the demographics are changing. So Australia mimics most of the world in terms of people becoming older. And the pace of this is really varied. So in Europe, this has been going on slowly over decades. But in Australasia, and in particularly Asian countries, they've made the same leaps in, say, a doubling of the percentage of people over age 65 in 20 years in what took 120 years for that to happen in Europe. And so it's very important that societies get their head around not only aging, but how fast that's happening in their particular society, how it's impacting the social structures, economic structures, family structures, community structures, because this is not a trend that's going to change anytime soon. So increasing life expectancy is one contributor to that change. Could you talk about how much life expectancy has changed and what the drivers behind that have been? So life expectancy, part of the drivers that have changed that have been better health care, particularly reducing infant mortality as well as the mortality of women giving birth, but also public health initiatives, uh, hygiene, food storage, There have been a number of things that have driven increased longevity. And the percentage of the population or the part of the population that's most affected by this is people over the age of 70. Because particularly when new medical technologies or new medications come on the market, they're usually for diseases that are more prevalent for people who are later in life. So we're used to having a a population pyramid And you talk about now it's more of a rectangle. So fewer younger people as a percentage of the population compared to older people. What will that mean for our society, do you think? Well, I think that what it will mean is a real positive for society because there will be more older adults, more social capital available to be utilized by the society. So, for example, people with a vast amount of experience in industry, in the arts, in government, that this experience can be used by more people for longer because more older adults will be living longer. But so often in society, we think of this as a negative because we only think about older adults as being impaired or needing care. It's only 6% of people over 65 have dementia. The vast majority of older adults are in the community, contributing to the community. And this, to me, is the biggest benefit 
um, as well as the biggest consequence of this uh, aging rectangularization of the aging demographic. For individuals themselves, you just mentioned that we associate aging with negatives like reduced physical abilities or maybe a, a fading memory. What do you think some of the positives are? I think that a lot of data, both in Australia as well as globally, suggests that uh, younger people and older people are happier than middle-aged people. And why might that be? But for the older people, I think it's they're able to look back on accomplishments. You have a better sense of yourself as a person, what, what you want. You have maybe gone through some difficult times coping with adversity, and you've come through that. Um, so that's a source of strength. And so these are all positives that we take into later life, as well as it's not only, uh, you know, of course, some things change with aging, like, you know, our motor skills slow down, but other things continue to improve. So, for example, your vocabulary continues to increase well into your 80s. What do you think are some of the misconceptions about aging? That it's a time solely characterized by loss, by loss of physical ability, loss of friends, that people are depressed, that this is, uh, all of these things are normal parts of aging. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, you experience loss, losses, uh, physical losses, and, and you lose friends, right? But that doesn't seem to be the overwhelming experience for most older people. Now, the caveat would be that if people are in poor health, actually at whatever age, then that does seem to overwhelm the system, and, and it does tend to lead to poor physical and mental health, right? But in the presence of relatively good physical health, then older people are able to take advantage of this stage in their life to pursue goals, perhaps, that they didn't have time to uh, pursue in the past, and to pursue interests. And actually, there's some speculation that the brain actually facilitates this so that, for example, the left and right hemispheres communicate more freely later in life. And this can unleash um, some generativity and creativity at that time. How else do, well, how do people's psychology change, if at all, over the course of their life? And yeah, do older people tend to feel similar to how they felt when they're young or do they undergo much in the way of personality change? So people used to have this stereotype that all older adults were more the same, that they were conservative, more religious, and so forth. And that's not the case. So in many regards, the best predictor of how you'll be later in life is how you were earlier in life. There were also some misconceptions about personality, that personality became very fixed, and that older people get really inflexible in their thinking. And again, this has proven to be not the case, that there can be uh, changes in the way you think and your attitudes well into your later decades. But I think one of the main changes psychologically is that overall, compared to younger populations, older adults seem to be less likely to experience depression, anxiety, some of the major psychiatric disorders. Unfortunately, that decline in psychiatric disorders is made up for a little bit by increasing likelihood of getting dementia. So your chance overall in the lifespan of having a psychiatric disorder stays static. But as I mentioned, it's only a very small percentage of, of the older adult population, at least just those over 65, that experience dementia. One, one really fascinating thing that you pointed out was that as we get older, we become more different from one another. Could you explain why that's the case? So the increasing heterogeneity with increasing age is a really important concept 
because again, the myth is that all older people are the same. When really, older people are vastly more different to each other than younger people. So almost any question that you could ask an older person versus a younger person, a vocabulary test, a personality test, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream, the older population is always going to give a more varied, wider response than the younger population. And why is that? Well, part of it's they've had more experience, right? So they've had more time to taste more flavors of ice cream. But it's also because people have had time to make choices. So people, some people choose to go to university, some people not. Some people choose to have families, some people not. Uh, you choose to travel or not. Then people have things happen to them. They may win the lottery. They may be in a motor vehicle accident. They may have a stroke, right? So that by the time you become older, all of these little events and choices add up to a really unique person, a unique brain, a unique personality, a unique set of social connections. And that's why older people are more heterogeneous than younger people. And what about older people socially? You talk about how maybe older people consolidate or choose to focus on relationships that are more meaningful to them. So Laura Carstensen's work at Stanford University, she was very interested in how older people's social relationships changed over time. Because again, there was a stereotype that, you know, older people just have smaller and smaller social relationships because their friends die. And that's a terrible passive thing that happens. But she had a different idea. She had an idea that people change at different points in their life how they interact with uh, others based on what they need. So younger people need a huge bunch of friends because they're trying out all these different things. Middle-aged people, they kind of consolidate their social networks because they have certain interests about work or, or family. And then older adults tend to concentrate on a small group of really close friends. And, but that's not passive. They actively prune relationships that aren't giving them what they need. And why is that? Because when you reach later age, you realize that you have lived longer than you have yet to live. And you want to maximize what is happening in your life at this point. You want to have maximal meaning. And so then you concentrate on those relationships that are really solid and give you meaning at that point in your life. We do worry as a society, though, about people becoming increasingly socially isolated or lonely in old age. So does that tendency to focus on fewer and fewer relationships also represent a bit of a, a vulnerability perhaps if they lose some of those people in their lives? I think that when you've lived 80 years and um, you, know, you have friends that, or siblings that you've had for, for maybe your entire life, um, those relationships by Carstensen's, uh, Laura Carstensen's research suggests that they give so much back that you don't need lots and lots of friends. And so, and Carson even speculates that you probably only need two or three really close friends. And what is the definition of that? It's somebody that you could call up or talk to about a really good thing that happened to you and share it, or a really bad thing that happened to you. However, the data on social isolation is really clear too, that if you don't have people to talk to, to share with, then you're more vulnerable for physical illnesses, mental illnesses, and dementia, right? So we really have to, as a society, when we have a greater number of older people in the society, give older adults meaningful ways to engage in society. 
open doors for older adults to participate. Because if we close doors to participate as a society, then in a sense, we're propagating this sense of, of isolation that, that older adults aren't welcome or don't belong. And to me, that's very damaging. The social resource that older people represent because they've got a vast amount of knowledge and experience and usually more free time. Do you think that it's adequately tapped? I do not think that the resource the older adults represent is adequately tapped. I don't think it's tapped in the employment sphere. So there was a study in Australia where 60% of HR managers think that 40 is too old to hire. So if we're going to live into our 80s, what are we going to do with those last 40 years? So that's not being tapped. We're not tapping into older adults doing intergenerational things, so mentoring younger people, and whether that's school-age people or people in corporations. And why aren't we able to tap into this? Because we have this inflexible model that we're going to, for example, have an employment model where we're going to have the same hours uh, of work, whether you're 20 or whether you're 80, and maybe you know more flexible work schedules. There's been a suggestion that more flexible work schedules earlier in life when people have kids and later in life when maybe people have other interests, you know, could be the way to go to best harness people of, of multiple generations. So I actually think that you need to think about it in as a more of a system, right? We don't only have older people and younger people in silos, like they're all in a network, a community, and how can we facilitate that network working more efficiently so that all people that want to contribute can contribute. It seems like we've created this social expectation that people for the majority of their lives will work full time and then all of a sudden do nothing. And it means that younger people have a too little leisure time and perhaps some older people have too much. So maybe it would be better for both younger and older people if we had a more flexible working arrangements. That's true. And the data suggests that if you work a full-time job, and then suddenly retire, that this has really bad effects on both health and well-being. People are not as content. And so the advice, and this is based on Australian Bureau of Statistics data, would be to kind of gradually maybe taper off work, maybe replace this with volunteering or, or, or some other activities. But I think that because of older adults' heterogeneity, you know, what's going to be right for one person. So if one person was in a very physically demanding job, it might be that that person should retire earlier, whereas somebody like myself, you know, university academic, we can work well into later years and, and be a source of mentoring. And so, again, I think that because of this heterogeneity and the system of society, you're exactly right, that people at different phases and different types of employment could be better and maybe more flexibly utilized. You speak in your book about someone called Gene Cohen and his social portfolio idea. Could you talk about that and how it might be relevant to people's retirement? So people in retirement are often really focused on their finances and they want to make sure that they have enough money to live uh, in their retirement. Uh, but you wouldn't put all of your money in one particular stock or something because that's putting all of your eggs in one basket. So Jean Cohen was a gerontologist, and she, he really believed in doing the same sort of having a balanced portfolio for your social interactions and your leisure time. So he basically made a two-by-two two matrix, and he said, well, if you think about leisure activities as being ones that you would 
participate in singly or in a group. And some activities you would participate in would be very physical and others wouldn't be so physical. Then you should have a balance across these four quadrants. So an example would be if, you know, if you like to read, reading a book, you know, that's something you could do singly or in a group if you were in a book club. Uh, one of my hobbies is bird watching. It's the same thing. It can be really physical. You can go hiking in the Andes, or you can do what I often do, which is sit on my veranda and, and watch the birds going by. Why is it important to have a, a balanced portfolio? If you always play bridge with the same people and they move away or one person dies, you, you want to have other activities that you can fall back on. Similarly, if your own health suffers such that you can't be as physically active as you once were, again, you want to have other activities you can fall back on. How do you think that the social experience of aging differs across cultures? I think that uh, it's very interesting in cross-cultural research, you know, what people think of as important as they age. There's a lot of similarities. People tend to focus on, on family and friends. They also tend to say that they wish they had spent more time with other people and in activities that gave them pleasure. Uh, no one ever says they wish they spent more time at work. I mean, so I think that there are a, a lot of um, similarities between cultures. But looking at different cultures can also give you a lot of insight into different ways of viewing aging and, and what aspects are valued. So some cultures actually have a much more defined place in society for older adults uh, to play. And for example, in New Zealand, in Maori society, it was traditionally that, that grandparents actually had a major child-rearing role with grandkids. And that's not always, you know, the case in all societies. So it's really interesting to look at how older adults are utilized in, in, in different societies and, um, and what roles they play. Do you think that there are other cultures that do it better in terms of utilizing the resource of old people? I think that it's a myth sometimes that older, the other cultures do it better, you know, that we have this myth of Asian cultures with filial piety where, you know, children always look after aging parents. But if you actually talk to people in those societies, you know, those societies are a lot more heterogeneous than you might think. So I think it's a grass is always greener on the other side. I think there's amazing initiatives utilizing older adults in all societies, including Australia. So, for example, in New South Wales, there's a library where you can check out older adults instead of books. If you want to know about World War II, you can check out an older serviceman who's actually been through the war, and they can come and tell you stories about that. Or an older person who does a craft, and, and they can come and demonstrate that to you. And so, I mean, to me, that's a wonderful use of, of older capacity, you know, in the society. I visited a nursing home in Bangkok, and there they had residents, some of them were almost 100, and they would give classes to high school children in traditional arts and crafts. And uh, they, had, they sat at tables, and they had little um, you know, name tags, and they were very proud of this sharing between generations. And so there's two very different uh, cultures, two very different examples, but, but the underlying view is the same, is, is the sharing between generations. Aged care is a burgeoning industry. How well do you think that current aged care facilities meet the needs of older people and what could be done to improve them? I think that this is a sphere, 
particularly in Australia, where a lot more work needs to be done. We are not serving the needs of older adults in aged care because aged care as a system is often really inflexible. It treats all older people coming in often as homogeneous. It doesn't allow expressivity. It kind of makes people more dependent. And all of this erodes a sense of self-efficacy and uh, it has negative impacts on mood and physical health. And it's a really wicked problem. It's not a simple problem. The people who work in aged care are incredibly dedicated, like sort of unsung heroes. But again, you have to think about it as a, as a systemic issue. Because older adults are so heterogeneous, they have heterogeneous finances and needs. You know, are there better ways that are more tied to the community that maybe would more mimic, in many Scandinavian countries, people only spend the very last months of their life in institutional care. And here in Australia, we tend to spend sometimes years in institutional care. Can we make more of those years living back in the community with more societal support so that then older adults can pursue what is most important to them? And is there perhaps the risk that in the existing aged care facilities, sometimes people take concern for the welfare in terms of a narrow sense of their health too far such that we don't let people engage in activities that might be meaningful for them because we're worried that they'll fall over into themselves and the consequent loss of independence and so forth. Yes, so if you have a really big focus on risk in aged care, then this leads to really limited degrees of freedom of what you can do if you're a resident in such a facility. So anybody walking anywhere might fall, but if you have an older adult in aged care, the only way you can 100% guarantee they won't fall is to tie them to a chair. And that's not a very good solution. It's an incredible loss of dignity and independence for the older person. And so we have to have some balance of what, what are acceptable risks. You know, anyone in any living situation, there's a certain amount of risk, there's a certain amount of uncertainty. But being unable to deal with risk and uncertainty in a kind of way that takes account of the person's dignity as well as trying to keep people safe, um, I think is a recipe for disaster and a lot of unhappiness, both for the people who are resident in such facilities and the caregivers. It doesn't make either party happy. Are there any alternative models of aged care that you think are showing promise? There are totally cool models of aged care springing up everywhere. And uh, one model, which tends to keep people in their homes longer, is a model that um, it's a village model that was piloted originally in Boston, where people, older people living in their individual townhouses and little apartments, they kind of got together and said, well, what if we paid sort of a management fee as a group and we could get services in like handymen or meals if we needed it or transportation, but we could still live in our own home. And to me, this is a really interesting model where people are kind of clubbing together to share resources and this has the added benefit of making social connections, right? They have a sense of self-efficacy. And to me, this is an excellent model. In the Netherlands, which in my own mind has one of the best aged care systems in the world, it's a very much that families are part of the older person being in the 
uh, aged care facility. And so family will often take them to GP appointments. And there's just a lot more interaction. They also do things like they have animals and they bring in their own furniture. Uh, they have small group nursing homes, um, which are you know relatively small groups of people living in, in a facility together. And those people interact and get the benefit of the shared animals and the furniture. Uh, but again, it's a, it's a sense of community. And I think what is often missing in a large, more institutional feeling facility is any sense of community. And I think if you're unmoored from a sense of community, then it's very, very hard to maintain a sense of well-being. In your book, there's a picture of a dementia village in the Netherlands. Could you tell me a bit about that example? Well, that is um, where they've taken the concept of aged care to, to embrace building an entire town into this facility. So it's, a, it's a, almost like a gated community, but it feels more like just a regular community. And here, then the older people in care can wander down to the bakery and, and get some bread and, and order a coffee. And people know that the shopkeepers know that people may have cognitive difficulties, but they just help people. And it's, it's people helping people. And in most of the facilities in the Netherlands, they don't have separate wings with very cognitively impaired people. And then the very intact people are, are in another, another place. They mix people up. And the, the feeling is that the people who have some difficulties will be helped by the people who are more able. And sometimes, you know, what's able, I mean, the person with dementia can be a really great cook, so they can cook. You know, it's not only going one way. And I think that's what I like. It's, a, it's like a reciprocity if it's too institutional a setting where everybody has to sit at the same place at the same table and everybody's having the same food. It just completely works against that heterogeneity that's part of later life. Well, on that theme of mixing things up, could you talk to me about the possibilities for intergenerational housing? Well, there's some intergenerational housing here in Australia. There are some living situations where it could be students and older adults uh, sharing housing. It could be even in, in single dwelling houses where you know an older adult has a younger person living with them to kind of help with chores and again this is a great intergenerational meeting but also uh, in the UK people in small town actually one street in a small town noticed that there were some isolated older people and they said we should bring those people a casserole and they started up a conversation when they brought over the food. And this has gone from one street in one little village in the UK to be like a movement across the UK. And they've uh, started piloting it here in Australia where they match older people who might need some assistance with meals with younger people who are willing to make some meals for them. And so there's this kind of uh, sharing uh, that happens. And so, and again, that's a, it's a great natural thing that a neighbor would do, but now we're just being a little bit more targeted so that people don't fall through the cracks. And I think that's really important. What role do you think technology could play in helping older people live well? I think that technology is really interesting. It can allow people to live longer in their own home. If you have a smart home that can uh, you know, have reminders about when you take your medication, can have a way to get in touch with someone if you have a fall, I think that this can be really useful for keeping people in their home for longer. 
Something that I'm often asked about is the robots that are coming. You know, there's a whole range of robots, uh, either to assist with, say, uh, lifting people in, um, in facilities or providing companionship. So uh, robotic animals, uh, Paro the seal um, is a famous example. And these sorts of sources of interaction, I think, are really stimulating for people. And although live animals provide a certain stimulation that no robot could ever match, sometimes people may have behaviors that are a little bit maybe uncertain, and so you might feel more comfortable with them with a, with a robotic animal. But I think that technology is going to do really, really interesting things. And older adults are the fastest growing users of the, the internet, of Facebook, right? They're doing genealogies online. Any kind of hobby that you have, you know, you can reach out to a like-minded community. And so a lot of people are, are getting social interactions in that way. And I think that that's a boon to people who may live in more isolated areas. You know, as long as you have an internet connection, you could potentially have a community. And Professor, my last question is, if you had the ear of the premiers and the prime minister, what would you tell them about what we can do as a society to promote positive and successful aging? I think that as a society, we have to understand and be vigilant against and actively fight against ageism. Ageism can be very subtle. It's not only sort of negative ageism where you tell people they can't do things, but it can this sort of you know positive ageism where you say, oh, sweetie, you shouldn't do that. And you, know, you think you're being helpful, but really it's just paternalistic and it's not useful at all. I think that this underlines a lot of issues that are facing society. You know, the fact that people can't seek employment when in their later years. They're often barred from or they find it increasingly difficult to have interactions. They're put in a pigeonhole of being too old, too old to use the internet, too old to do A, B, or C. Um, there's lots of studies of people who dress up researchers as older than they are, go into shops, and they're treated in a completely different way. Unfortunately, same studies have been done, and I've done some of these studies with healthcare professionals. If you give them vignettes, and the only thing you change is the person's age, they recommend different things, oftentimes less aggressive assessments and treatments. And in aged care, the same thing, that people might assume that they don't need stimulation, that, that people with dementia don't need to have their time occupied meaningfully. And so whether you're a fully functional older person in the community or you have dementia and you're in aged care, ageist attitudes on behalf of others can significantly decrease your quality of life and in some studies can decrease your length of life. As a society, I think this is an amazingly important issue to address. That's what I would say. Professor Vahana, thank you so much for speaking with The Conversation. No worries, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to Speaking With through iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. If you liked this podcast or if you have ideas for future podcasts, please send us a comment through iTunes. (laughs) 